Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Welcome back to a very sweaty Mark's Madness, ladies and gentlemen. How are y'all doing? (laughs) Very Uh, sweaty, very snotty, all kinds of good bodily functions going on today. It's so good. David's sick. I haven't had AC for a week in the middle of Missouri summer and won't have it for another two weeks. So get ready for a couple episodes of Nathan recording from a sweat lodge. Uh, It's going to be... It's going to be a sight to behold. Uh, if I make it through this without passing out, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> why? Oh, why is this room so such a contained hot space? It's a very, um, very small room. You've definitely got to, to ventilate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of ventilation in the converted closet under my stairs. Yeah, no, that's definitely the death. Then I've put blankets up throughout for sound dampening. Yeah, no, this is very, very well ventilated. Definitely not a heat trap that that, that tries to kill me. Um, no, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. How y'all doing? Uh, we are going to start, as we often do or Mm -hmm. want to do, with some current events because for the first time in like, I don't know, forever, there's some decently happy current events that we get to talk about, guys. All right, gang. So let's, uh, so without further ado, David, take us away. Hey, yeah, okay. So, uh, first and foremost, we've been talking about this leading up for a few weeks right like we we were were letting people know this was coming because it was a surprise when pedro castillo jumped into the second round when he came up in the first round and then we talked about you know uh the other coalitions um that were being built with other left groups and the the election came down to the wire it it was like i mean we're talking less than a hundred thousand vote difference it looked like some cia shenanigans were about to kick off when those oh. vote totals started coming in i was i was red i was braced for oh it. the uh the international ones america wasn't counting their votes and and it was rolling and it was like okay so let's get ready for the ballot stuffing but apparently they had international totals going in and they knew the international total was only eighty thousand. and so when it looked like he was going to win by more than that uh, you can't do more than 100% of your votes. It was like, well, okay, we'll start counting them now. <laughs> <laughs> so what does so what does that mean then? So Pedro Castillo win, I have seen yes. uh, generally universally accepted as a good thing. Um, there are some people that seem to want to be angry about it, and I don't quite understand that. Uh, I don't know why I, you would. He was against uh, Fujimori, who was the daughter and kind of became the first lady when her mom died of the dictatorship. So... <sighs> So Peru's got a very complicated past, you know. I mean, we know that the Maoists that even killed um, left-leaning and socialist indigenous leaders because they weren't purely socialist enough. Gonzalo and the whole Shining Path, um, and and that's that's a dark history. Uh, but also, U.S.-imposed dictatorships tended to happen in Central and South America, and in one of them, a fascist leader that left. Um, after Imperial Japan was losing World War II, got installed by the United States. And it was a pretty brutal dictatorship. Well, in the process, his wife died, and his daughter, I guess, at the teenage years, was uh, presumed the title First Lady in some way. I don't, I don't understand that, but I've, I've heard people mention that she essentially was a, you know, kind of in this ruling as the First Lady before. Um, obviously, thankfully, that dictatorship has long ended, uh, but that daughter was running for president, and she was the one on the side that, that was going against Castillo. So I don't know how you can be upset that an out-and-out fascist lost <laughs> to Because someone some people who, want to be angry. <laughs> yeah. And again, this was, this was a man who was popular in the rural regions. Pedro Castillo was. I mean, you can see the voting block. It's like when you look at Venezuela or Bolivia, and you can see the more rural, the more indigenous, the more heavily they supported. So, you know, this is but, this is the candidate. But he's just Latin American Bernie Sanders. We don't <sighs> want that. And that's yeah. I um so there's there's some analysis that that someone pointed out this week, and it kind of drives me to want us to go read neocolonialism right after this book. We're reading neocolonialism next. Everyone knows it. It's <laughs> it's the worst kept secret in the history of time. It We're reading neocolonialism next. Um, but there was a quote in it by Kwame Nkrumah that basically said that external social democracy to the global south is different than internal global democracy or social democracy because internal social democracy is a pathway to power and you take any power pathway 
available to you in the global south, whereas in the global north, it upholds the colonial structure and reinforces it and saps the, the left power into reinforcement of colonialism. Um, I, that, that's a general idea. I don't remember it word for word, yeah. but I remember specifically the words external social democracy and internal social democracy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, don't ever think of it like that. But also, and this is what's usually happening, and, and, and he's been promising, I don't know how many he's going to quite be able to get done um, before the U.S. You know, does something to slow it down. I mean, if the other election to talk about, and we'll get to it in a second, is Mexico and AMLO, um, uh, Lopez uh, Oprador, if you're wondering what, what AMLO is, it's his initials. Uh, he won writing promises of slashing NAFTA. NAFTA came up for renewal. His social policies are still extremely popular, and we'll talk about how well that went um, in a minute here. Um, but he did, you know, re-sign NAFTA because, I mean, there's only so much power you have as a colonial subject in the global south. Uh, but... Pedro Castillo, my understanding is there is some pretty extreme, especially nationalization of the mining industry that he Uh-oh. has promised in his campaigns. And Uh-oh. of course, you see stuff like that from, you know, the the regular Western media is like, oh, miners fear Pedro Castillo. And you look at the vote in the mining towns and it's like 92% for him. When they say miners, it's like when America talks about farmers, right? And they don't mean like the rural farm workers or even the few like little farms that will, you know, make their money trying to go to the farmer's market or something. They're talking like these big industrial farms and the farmers are the business owners, right? The, the, the American kulaks are the only ones that count as farmers, um, <laughs> uh, but not not the migrant farm workers or or you know the smaller farms or anything like that. So when they say miners, they mean you know the big mining tycoons, right? But yeah. miners themselves overwhelmingly supported Pedro Castillo. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I mean there is there is some stuff that will definitely disrupt U.S. imperial. And you got to remember too, and I mentioned this before. Even when we're looking at Ecuador and how how heartbreaking it was that Ares lost and that Lenin Moreno took the turn he did, um, writing you know Correa's party, right? But as much as it, it hurt to to lose Ecuador and, and there's always a battle against imperialism no matter who is ruling in the the global South country, uh, but Peru kind of behind Colombia, I guess you could argue you know maybe El Salvador, but I think I think Peru's probably the biggest. Uh, satellite base of, of U.S. power in South America, right? It's it's so like Colombia is the yeah. second biggest puppet state of the United States behind Israel, and the biggest in the Western Hemisphere. The next biggest in the Western Hemisphere was probably Peru, right? There was a reason it was called Lima Group that was based in there. Uh, where the hell are they going to go now, right? And and so that's that's great news as far as revolutionary defeatism, and that's the thing too. You know, I mean. Clearly, and you can see from the reaction, this is not in the U.S. interest, right? Oh, yeah. No, the the narrative around it has been universal. I mean, anytime The Economist gets big mad like that, you know, you generally know something good is happening. Right. And so anytime you see something outside of the U.S. borders not going the U.S.'s way, going against hegemony, and it, you know, unless it was something, and I think this is probably why they, they go this way with all the propaganda, where like everybody else is super genocidal, blah, 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 right? And so many people that pretend to be uh, left, that's POR portend, like they believe themselves to be left, but then magically, you know, back U.S. hegemony, they, they fear that kind of stuff. But unless there actually was something like that, then unquestionably, you're cheering for going against the United States, right? That's revolutionary defeatism. You want your country to lose the war. You want your country to lose, uh, by extension, then it's covert operations and, and the elections it tries to manipulate and things like that, right? And so even if Castillo wasn't great, and he seems pretty great, he's, he's a self-avowed uh, Marxist-Leninist, he's a former school teacher, um, you know, and and he's talking about nationalizing industries. He's great, but even if he wasn't, right? Even if he was horrible, this is clearly against the U.S. interest. You at least have to be happy in the sense of revolutionary defeatism. You, you know, going, oh, well, this isn't that great. It's like, who the hell are you? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I think pretty universally this is a this is a great thing for the global south. It's a great thing for for the people of Peru. Um, yes. and I just I I I hope that the U.S. is too busy uh, with their other bullshit around the world to go fuck it up too terribly much. Yeah, because you know they're trying. I mean, they're doing their usual like immediately call election fraud. Always call election fraud. If you if you win forty nine point nine percent of the vote, like like um you know uh, fujimori did or you win like two percent of the vote it doesn't matter if you're the u.s back candidate and you're you know you're right wing you lose it's fraud you just start screaming fraud and if they win by a wide margin well obviously that margin's too wide they did something dirty that proves it was fraud if they win by a close margin well yeah that proves it was fraud they won by just enough to get past it it's always fraud right always Fraud all the way down. And it was funny, too, uh, is, is somewhere in the election, I think that day, they did arrest someone who was from her party, like, caught stuffing ballots, too. And, of course, the government was centrist, like, you know, until Castillo is sworn into office, it's a centrist liberal, um, you know, serves the U.S. government and its foreign policy uh, type parties. And those people widely you know aligned with straight up fascism to try to combat pedro castillo when you look at the votes that doesn't mean that party was going to like jump in and, and let the ballot stuffing go and so you know basically they they still caught um Fujimura's campaign ballot stuffing and then i guess tried to appeal it and then didn't didn't win um so that was a little blip on that news radar that day um but it was hard to keep up with because it went so fast it was just kind of funny when they're accusing fraud yep Almost always. Uh, what else is going on around the world? Uh, well, in Mexico, and uh, we should know, you know, of course, we just brought up NAFTA, and Mexico has had long struggles with uh, drug cartels. That's what has caused the femicide there, largely because of NAFTA. Um, well, also with COVID-19, you know, that, that type of violence has been pretty high, and there also have been, you know, mayoral candidates assassinated upcoming to this election, but there was an election that was done for the House of Representatives. So basically, you know, by extension, AMLO's party and, and coalition yeah. of a few parties. Um, and so this was supposed to be like, a, a you know, where we find out how much people really like, you know, Lopez. It's a, referen- it's a, referendum, a referendum on his presidency. It's, midter- it's, it's the same narrative we're going to get in 2022. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for midterms. Yeah, it's a referendum. And it's always surrounded by death, mostly COVID-19 deaths like, Okay, that's that has nothing to do with the election. Um, and then, of course, you know, there were a few assassinations, uh, but those were mayoral candidates. They weren't actually um, uh, in the Congress. Nonetheless, so you'll hear a lot of narrative of violence surrounding it and the referendum and whatever. And, and supposedly this was all supposed to come crashing down. Well, that's not what happened. The, the leftist coalition won widely. It went very, very well. So lots of good... Central and South American election news going on all at once. Um, and so that's very, very good. Very good. Anything else on the agenda before we jump into the reading? Um, I feel like there was something else, but I can't remember it. Nope, my brain doesn't have it. Nope. There we go. All right. Let's well, read. Well, then without further ado, we will jump into the reading for this week. Uh, we are starting on page 516 of Black Reconstruction, right at the top. Nice round number, ready to rock. Uh, under the Constitution, the governor appointed all of the chief state officers, except the lieutenant governor and judges. And also, he named most of the county officers. Nevertheless, the Constitution of 1869 gave the Negroes the right to vote and gave Florida its first approach to a real government of the people. Reed's administration started out with strength and respectability, but it was weak because of a lack of recognition of the colored people. His opponents, therefore, tried one method of attacking him by introducing a civil rights bill compelling hotel keepers and railroad companies to receive Negroes on the same terms as whites. The bill was passed in the assembly, but the governor called in members of the Senate and explained why he thought it was not wise to push such legislation. Colored people became alarmed, but through Pierce and other leaders, their apprehension was allayed. The ill will against Reed began when electors were chosen in November 1868. Impeachment proceedings against him were begun, but the Supreme Court ruled that there was no quorum in the Senate at the time. The Secretary of State Alden had joined in the opposition to Reed and was removed. Gibbs, the colored leader, was selected as his successor, which greatly increased the strength of Reed among the freedmen. 
The ensuing turmoil in Florida cannot be understood unless one keeps carefully in mind just what was taking place. We love our context. The planters were encouraging lawlessness and inciting the Negroes to make extravagant demands for equality in order to embarrass the carpetbaggers and excite the poor whites. The carpetbaggers and northern capitalists were seeking to get rid of Reed and bribing white and black members of the legislature in order to get through special legislation for capital. The Negroes were trying to find a program of labor legislation which would help and uplift the masses. Reed was playing capital, labor, and planters against each other, and in the midst of the contradictory and opposing forces, the state staggered on. The governor informed the legislature that the past seven years of anarchy and insurrection had left nothing in the treasury, with 600,000 of debts and a large amount repudiated. The the former inadequate school fund had been robbed of its last dollar to aid the Confederate forces. The railroad system, half completed, was bankrupt. The revenue law is inadequate. No schools or school system, no benevolent institutions, no almshouses, penitentiaries, and scarcely a jail. All right, well, there's some good things. Yeah. Um, (laughs) In the first Reconstruction legislation, Negro leaders Harmon and Black tried to pass a school law for the education of the masses. At the second session of the legislature, a homestead law passed and the school laws amended. Acts of violence throughout the state continued and there was considerable bribery in the legislature. The second session of the legislature met January 5th, 1869. There was a second attempt to impeach Reed, foiled by the action of two colored members, H.S. Harmon and E. Fortune, and finally defeated by a vote of 43 to 5. Whew. That is ext- a big That's pretty resounding margin, defeat. yeah. An extraordinary session of the legislature was called May 17th, 1869, on account of financial difficulties in matters connected with the sale of the Pensacola and Georgia Railroad and the Tallahassee Railroad. Railroad legislation was introduced. Littlefield and Swepson already operating in North Carolina being connected with the matter. State aid was asked at the rate of 12000 a mile for these railroads, which would amount to $4 million. Wallace says that members of the legislature were openly bought, white men receiving 2000 to 6000 and colored men 500 or less. Good God. You can't, even on bribery, yeah. it's unequal. Like, for right. fuck's sake. <laughs> There were disturbances in various counties and open violence and bloodshed in 1868 to 69. Reed was asked to declare martial law, but instead he sent Secretary Gibbs to the center of the disturbances. Gibbs received close attention from the colored people and openly attacked the carpetbagger leaders. The legislature met in January 1870 in its third regular session. The governor repeated a statement which he had made before. In several counties, organized bands of lawless men have combined to override the civil authorities and many acts of violence have occurred. But these have been incidental to the state in all its past history and arise less perhaps from special enmity to the present form of government than from opposition to the restraints of law in general. It is true that the same that these same localities being, to all intents, border sections have from time immemorial been the resorts of lawless and reckless men. And in some of them, as in earlier periods of existence of the western and southwestern states, the law of Judge Lynch and the regulators for years before the war had been the only code of much efficacy. I had hoped that, better results from the daunting oh, name, the regulators. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you're called the regulator, something bad's about to happen. That's pretty bad, yeah. That's usually bad. I had hoped better results from the reorganization of government under Republican auspices, but the bitterness resulting from the war, the noxious teachings of disappointed and defeated political opponents, assisted by the occasional lack of discretion on the part of injudicious political friends, succeeded for a long time in setting at naught the advice and efforts of the better men of all classes, until improvement at times seemed to be hopeless, and I have been strongly and forcibly urged to the declaration of martial law. Again, an attempt was made to impeach Reed, but the colored members stood by him. The impeachment committee sent in two reports, a majority report signed by four and a minority report signed by one. That's Yeah, that's a minority. Mm -hmm. Uh, The minority report, which was adopted, said, Looking back over the history of the state for the last 10 years, so full of excitement, agitation, and turmoil, we are profoundly impressed with a sense of the value and results of the reconstructive legislation of the national government and its subsequent results in the organization of our own state government. David? We feel bound in duty to call attention to the many difficulties and embarrassments, particularly of a financial description, with which in the administration of a newly organized government, Governor Reed has found himself continually surrounded. 
Without sympathy, with scanty resources, without the puppet from a portion of his cabinet, as it appears from testimony and from official documents, called to fill a multitude of offices by the appointment of comparative strangers, he must have been seriously embarrassed and hampered on every hand. After deliberate consideration of the charges, the evidence surrounding and difficult circumstances in, and a view of the results that may be expected to follow the action taken, we do not find the charges preferred to be so far sustained by the evidence given as to warn us in recommending the impeachment. The report was adopted by a vote of 27 to 22. All the colored members of our legislature except one voted against impeachment. In 1870, the Democratic Party put a nomination, Bloxham, for lieutenant governor. The Republican Party declared that if Bloxham was elected, they would unite with the Democrats so as to impeach Governor Reed and make Bloxham governor. That's good backstabbing, boys. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it could work. Uh, Wallace thinks that Bloxham was, in fact, elected, but counted out by the returning board of which Gibbs, the colored secretary of state, was the member. He says that Gibbs consented with great reluctance and under the threat of impeachment if he did not yield. It must be remembered, however, that Bloxham was the friend and mentor of Wallace and edited his book. Uh, that'll make a difference. <laughs> the legislature met in January 1872 and again sought to impeach the governor. The more ignorant of the members of the assembly were secured to vote for the impeachment. A Southern County judge was promised appointment as a circuit judge and a democratic member of the assembly was promised a share of new bonds. Ex governor Walker promised the support of the Democrats. Totally not corrupt at all. Just no, this process is know. working splendidly. Yeah. Yeah. Good old American democracy. Um, the governor in his, in his message complained that more than two thirds of the bonds issued in aid of Littlefield railroads or of Littlefield roads. That's, that's different and important at this point in time. Um, yes. had been wasted without any real progress. The bonds were entrusted to firms of swindlers in New York. Impeachment proceedings were based on this, and the governor was suspended from office. But the trial was never held, and at an extra session of the legislature, he was restored to office. This guy is Teflon, man. You cannot it get him down. amazing what is going on. All right, there have been... There have been much corruption in every single legislature under Reed, but Wallace says the colored members at this session begin to show more manhood by openly denouncing the tricks of the carpetbaggers and refusing to be enslaved by caucus rule. They showed their independence by this resolution introduced by Daniel McKinnis, colored of Duval County. Whereas it appeared that after several attempts to have a civil rights bill, which gives every citizen the same protection in the enjoyment of his liberties, and whereas it has become pa a painful fact from the action of the Liberty Billings, acting President Pro Tem of the Senate of the State of Florida, and others who are opposed to seeing colored citizens of the state enjoy the same rights that he and his associates do, we again witness on today another defeat of the Civil Rights Bill, caused by only those who profess to be our friends in connection with this great cause of civil rights. Therefore, resolve that we, the colored members, and those who honestly sympathize with us, do unhesitatingly repudiate such friendship, and do now henceforth withdraw from the decline of ever- affiliating with politically or to aid in electing any such men or man who have so baselessly misrepresented our people. These resolutions were ruled out of order. McKinnis was fought and denounced in his county and lost the next election in the legislature, although one of the most faithful and honest representatives of colored people. The delegation elected from Leon County, all colored, stood stood opposed to the system of plunder, which had been inaugurated in almost every county of the state. This was shown when Gleason introduced a bill to authorize corporations to change their names and consolidate their capital stock, etc. So kind of like uh, uh, the uh, opposite of Taft-Hartley bill, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the measure was adopted by Republican caucus, but when the matter came up for final consideration, the Leon County... Delegates opposed the bill, and John W. Wyatt, a Negro, made a speech which was the first ordered spread on the minutes of the legislature of Florida. We want no Tom Scott's, Jim Fisk's, or Vanderbilt's in this state to govern us, by means of which they would influence the legislature, legislature tending to advance personal interests. I kind of bad news on that what? part. 
Who would ever advance legislation to advance their personal interests? I call shenanigans. The great curse of Florida has been dishonest corporations, rings and cliques, with an eye single to their central interest. And if this bill is suffered to pass this assembly, in my opinion, we may look for a continuation of abuses and an usurpation of the rights of citizens who may be opposed to the evil machinations such are generally exerted by consolidated bodies. The recent, the recent ex- expose of the Tammany Ring in New York has satisfied all right-thinking men that the power exercised by strong bodies composed of many corporations is the most dangerous to the public good and safety. Therefore, it ill becomes us to pass a bill enveloped in darkness as the title of the bill indicates it to be. Oh, what? Businesses, uh, business interests should not be making legislation because they control too much power? What? Again, shenanigans. What is yeah. all this? This is an American. A last attempt was made in this session to impeach Reed. Again, what are we on? Like five now? Good God. Wallace says, as one of the members of the committee, I never saw the report of the investigating committee nor any other evidences upon which we subs- the subsequent articles of impeachment presented by the committee were based. After a long and intricate fight, Reed, supported loyally by his Secretary of State Gibbs, outgeneraled his opponents. However, Reed was not renominated, although the colored people wanted him. The planters now felt strong enough to assert themselves and secured the selection as Republican candidate for governor of Justice O.B. Hart. Okay, the so, bag- so oh. now the that that officially ends the Reed impeachment expanded universe. Yeah, we had, I was about to say. we had a trilogy, we had prequels, we had a oh reboot. <laughs> The carpetbaggers filled the rest of the ticket, except that the freedmen received recognition of by the nomination of J.T. Walls as one of the candidates for United States representative. The campaign was bitter and the results of the election close. The Republicans carried it by a small margin. Hart was the first native governor of Florida in Reconstruction times, but was a vacillating and uncertain man. The legislature met in 1873 and nominated a colored man, Scott, for speaker. He was defeated by the revolt of the colored delegation from Leon County on account of his connection with politicians. And wait, the politician uh, connection with politicians kept him from being all right, whatever. Yeah. In return, the white. In return, I'm, I'm the assuming. White, I'm assuming it's connection with specific politicians. Not I just, would assume so. Not just uh, like, it, oh, you're connected with politics. How dare you be elected? <laughs> We're really going with this outsider thing. Right. In return, the white leaders insisted that no colored man was fit for a cabinet position except Jonathan C. Gibbs. And he, they charged, had attempted to count in Bloxham in the previous election. The Negroes insisted on Gibbs. Hart refused until the colored members in caucus demanded Gibbs' appointment with a threat that they would otherwise combine with the Democrats and clog the wheels of the administration. Colored members of both branches of the legislature went to Hart in a body, and finally he had to accede to their demand. Gibbs was appointed appointed superintendent of public instruction. Gibbs held this office during 1872 to 74, when the school system was tottering on the and the collection of funds difficult. He virtually established the public schools of the state as an orderly system. But when a student of Florida history recently tried to examine the records of his administration, he discovered that they had all disappeared from the state archives. Oh, oh no, boy. it's a national treasure. Oh, God. Somebody find... Get Nick Cage on this shit. God damn it, Cage. Uh, The extraordinary political complications of the day are illustrated by Hart and his cabinet. Hart was a Southern planter backed by carpetbaggers, and his Secretary of State was McClin. Wallace says, The cabinet was a very fair one with the exception of McClin, who was a deserter from the rebel army and being self-condemned for his own treachery for having volunteered in the Confederate service and then deserted before he smelled gunpowder. He was satisfied that neither the Democrats nor the carpetbaggers cared to trust him, and he was therefore the tool of the most rabid, unprincipled members of the carpetbag dynasty of the state. In 1873, Gibbs and the trustees of the Agricultural College Fund frustrated an attempt to invest the 100000 received from the general government in bonds, which would have put the cash in the possession of the politicians. When Hart died in 1874, Stearns became governor. He wanted to ask the resignation of Gibbs, but Gibbs was too popular. Stearns had promised to nominate Gibbs for Congress, but was afraid that he could not control him. Gibbs was in perfect health and before the meeting of the convention and during its sitting. He delivered a powerful speech in the Stearns convention, attacking one of his supporters. He went home and ate a hearty dinner, after which he suddenly died. Oh, God. Oh, no. Damn it. It was whispered and generally believed that he was poisoned by some of the carpetbaggers because he was they dreaded his growing popularity. Uh, that, yeah, that sounds on. Honestly, that sounds on board. I, I buy that one. Yeah. His brother, Judge Mifflin Gibbs of Arkansas, gives a different cause of death, but notes his fear of assassination. 
My brother, Jonathan C. Gibbs, was then Secretary of State of Florida with Governor Hart as executive. He had the benefit of a collegiate education, having graduated at Dartmouth, New Hampshire, and had for some years filled the pulpit as a Presbyterian minister. The stress of Reconstruction and the obvious necessity for ability in secular matters induced him to enter the official life. Naturally indomitable, he more than fulfilled the expectations of his friends and supporters by rare ability as a thinker and a speaker, with unflinching fidelity to his party principles. I found him at Tallahassee, the capital, in a well-appointed residence, but his sleeping place in the attic resembled, as I perceived, considerably an arsenal. He said that the better advantage it had had been his resting place for several months, as his life had been threatened by the Ku Klux. It was my last interview or sight of my brother. Subsequently, after a three-hour speech, he went to his office and suddenly died of apoplexy. In the legislature of 1873, there were 25 colored members of whom 19 were in revolt against the political leaders. The methods of the white politicians were illustrated in the case of two colored members who wished to inspect the state prison. Everything was done to impede them. A special train was prepared for the comfort of the visiting guests, but it left just two hours before the time designated, and the colored men were left behind. But the Negroes were energetic and determined and reached the grounds by other means. The warden at once set out liquors and cigars, but the colored men refused to partake and went right about their investigation. The Civil Rights Bill finally passed at this session without great opposition. The matter of land distribution continued to come up, and the northern politicians assured the freemen that they favored high taxes upon the lands of the ex-slaveholders so as to compel them to sell these lands cheaply. On the other hand, they they accused the planters of being in favor of low taxes so that the whites could hold the land and rent it to colored people. This propaganda influenced Negro votes, but resulted in no real action. In the legislature of 1875, most of the minor offices were filled with colored men. Republican State Convention renominated Stearns for governor and adopted a platform arraigning both state and national governments for corruption, extravagance, and oppression. The state debt was only $1.3 million. The state tax... The state taxation, which had been less than two mills on the dollar in 1861, had increased to five mills in 1867 and 13 and seven-tenths, very specific there, mills in 1872. It was then reduced to seven mills in 1875. The expenditures were but 190000 against the receipts of 220000 Thus, the Democratic cry of extravagance was not particularly effective. In the campaign of 1876, the Democrats won. McClin and ex-Confederate cabinet celebrated in the Tallahassee Sentinel the victory of Hayes. In general, Florida represents no abnormal picture. There was some waste and high taxation, but it does not reach extremes. It had, as in other states, to contend with deliberate efforts to sabotage its advance. The Floridian... That doesn't say Floridian. It's like Floridan. It's Floridian. No, you're right. Floridan. Florid. The Floridan. 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 Uh, the Floridan said in 1871, no greater calamity could befall the state of Florida while under the rule of its pre- present carpetbag scalawag officials than to be placed in good financial credit. Our only hope in this state's utter f- financial bankruptcy and heaven grant that they may speedily come. On the other hand, establish for the state financial credit on Wall Street so that Florida bonds can be sold by Reed and Company as fast as issued, and you give these foul harpies a life tenure to these offices. The temporal salvation of the taxpayers is having script low so that they can buy it to pay taxes with, and in having the state's financial credit so low that Reed and Company can't sell state bonds so as to raise money without, with which to perpetuate their hold on office. There was bribery of Negro Negro legislatures, as Wallace frankly shows, but he also says of his history, the design of this work is to correct the settled and erroneous impression that has gone out to the world that former slaves, when enfranchised, had no concept of good government, and therefore their chief ambition was corruption and plunder. That it was white men and not colored men who originated the corruption and enriched themselves from the earnings of the people of the state from the year 1868 to 1877. That the loss of the state to the National Republican Party was not due to any unfaithfulness of the colored people to that party, but to the corruption of these strange white leaders termed carpetbaggers. That the colored people have done as well as any other people could have done under the same circumstances, if not better. And that sounds like something that's always targeted in the global south, right? You always hear about corruption, 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 especially, you know, yeah. uh, the the more a uh, 
country is poor in the global south, right? It's a corruption, corruption, corruption. But you always find out that that's like ties from rich corporations and shit like that. Exactly. Wallace particularly laments the effects of the corrupt leaders on the Negro. The northern machine politicians assert that it was the incompetence and unfaithfulness of the Negro voter to the Republican Party that brought about the unhealthy condition of things which made it solid south. It was that these and kindred acts of the carpetbaggers which furnish the key to unlock the door that reveals the secret of the solid south. While these very carpetbaggers were sustained by the northern machine politicians, from the beginning to the end of the steer of the stern so-called administration, it was contaminated with packed juries for political purposes. And during the last two years of his term, it became a patent fact that scarcely a person brought before the courts in a black belt counties could be convinced from the fact that the... Pe- pe- convicted. Oh, convicted. Could be convicted. That makes sense. Could be convicted from the fact that the petite juries were mostly composed of the very worst element among freedmen. This is not the whole truth. The reactionary planters, in whom Wallace and other colored men pathetically believed, were not honest or sincere in their advice and support of Negroes. They encouraged lawlessness among poor whites, extravagance among carpetbaggers, and bribery among Negroes. They deliberately befouled the whole political nest in order to discredit its rulers and voters. And then we get the fun outro. Shall Shall I sing of liberty when there is no liberty? Shall I sing of freedom when there is none? Shall I sing love songs to young lovers who are slaves? My soul thrills even as I think the labrum. Le, as I think the, lab, the burnum. Yeah, the laburnum. Yeah, you In know, spring the laburnum. Ti- the laburnum, you know. In springtime thrills to link her chains of gold. I am lost in the great miracle which nature has endlessly wrought out of freedom. But man sits amid his own ruins eating husks. Charles Erskine Scott Wood. David, what's a laburnum? A laburnum is a tree, a big, fancy, droopy tree, kind of like a weeping willow, but doesn't droop that as low and grows higher. And all the droops are like yellow flowers. Okay, so so there's the change of gold. It's imagery. It's a poem. It's good times. Yeah. Um, And so this kind of weirdly named tree, it's kind of we don't know weird names of trees. I'm sorry. We're not (laughs) we're not triologists over here. We're not, you know, our 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 bowl, our arbor days. Arbor arbologists, sure. Tree, tree doctors. No, I'm going with treeologist. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a business card. Yeah. All right. One. There we go. Uh, so this chapter, uh, I mean, really has been th- th- this last chunk of chapters have kind of followed the same trend. Um, they've all been kind of exposing this myth mm-hmm. of of you know black you know the black people took over and there was corruption and there was extravagance and graft and all of this thing and oh it was so bad and that's why reconstruction failed and du bois has been kind of uh, you know meticulously taking those arguments apart piece by piece and showing the actual actors on the ground and what was actually happening and this one was was just like the rest in the sense of it's pretty convincingly not the the black people's fault in this case it is very clearly Outside agitation from the North, from capital's interest mostly, um, so and from the interest of the the yeah, planting by, class, mm-hmm. yeah, that are that are desperate to hold on to their power, and so to do so, their whole raised on taunt is to to destroy everything, to to and, you know basically pull everything to a screeching halt because they want to 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 throw to discredit kind of the whole system as a whole. Yeah, and that that makes sense, you know, because I mean, first and foremost, there's. There's always this, like, the poorer you are, the more desperate you are, the more you'll take bribery. But that that hasn't correlated in even taking the bribery or acting on it, as these chapters showed very well, very meticulously, very much in detail. But also, that's always only thinking of one side of the bribery, and that's a nice, convenient way to make sure the powerless never are allowed to, to have any office, because, I mean, how can you bribe someone without any money? So being bribed by the rich... But because of this narrative that they're weak and they're poor and they're foolish enough to be bribed, we can't let them rule. That's a point of weakness. That's that's always going to be, I mean, to take that to its root, right? There's no way that that's not just ripping on anyone oppressed or poor ever having power, right? You can't have power. Yep. You'll be corrupted too easily. It's, it's, it's the animal farm argument, right? It's yep. garbage. Um but but that isn't even true as Du Bois meticulously took apart. Yep. So without further ado, let's move on to chapter 13, 
the duel for labor control on border and frontier. How in North Carolina and Virginia, in the border states and on the southwestern frontier, the dominant white worker after the war sealed the fate. The dominant white worker after the war sealed the fate of his black fellow laborer. After the okay, yeah, that sentence was weird. Yeah. But basically, we're going to find out how white people fucked over their uh, laboring counterparts. So right. So and and this this follows the the pattern, right? There were Confederate states that were black majority, and then we did the Confederate states that are white majority, and now we're doing the border states, and the border states by nature, of course, are going to be. I, I mean, you know, slaves were, I hate to use the word bread, but it's an accurate description of what happened. Slaves were bred and sold and, and everything there. And so they were pro-Confederacy, but they were on the border. They started having some industrialization. This wasn't where the planters, for the most part, actually were. And so there's definitely going to be a big labor base as well. Yeah. North Carolina presents quite a different situation and method of reconstruction from the state studied. The war left the state in economic bankruptcy. The repudiation of the Confederate debt closed every bank and farm property was reduced in value one third. The male population was greatly reduced and the masses were in distress. In 1800, North Carolina had 337,000 whites and 140,000 Negroes. In 1840, 484,000 whites and 268,000 Negroes. In 1860, there were 629,000 whites and 361,000 Negroes. There were 30,000 free Negroes in 1860, a class who had in the right past had in the past received some consideration. Up until 1835, they had the right to vote and had voted intelligently. In the 19th century, one of the best schools in the state for children of the white aristocracy was conducted by John Chavis, a Negro educated at Princeton. Many Negroes had come into the state during the war, so that their proportion of the population increased in 1870 and 1880. In general, however, emancipation was not attended by any great disorders, and the general tide of domestic life flowed on. The Freedmen's Bureau issued rations to white people as well as colored, and many were kept from starvation. Large sums of money were received from the North in 1866 and 67, and grain and provisions as well. When President Johnson called North Carolina whites into consultation concerning his proposed plan of reconstruction, many of them were highly indignant, and some even leaving the room. They did not propose to share power even with the president, but wanted to put their own legislature back in power. They finally acquiesced, and William W. Holden was appointed provisional governor, May 29th. He ordered an election for a convention with a white electorate September 21st. By June 27th, 1,912 pardons had been granted in North Carolina. 510 came under the $20,000 exemption. Here, as in other states, there came the preliminary movement of planters to secure control of the Negro vote. Alfred M. Waddell, in July 1865, editor of the Herald before the war, and a colonel in the Confederate Army, spoke to the colored people of Wilmington and denounced taxation without representation. He advocated the extension of suffrage to qualified Negroes. Uh, qualified. That's yeah. always good. Model minority. Here we go. <laughs> of course, uh, the um, Confederate Army colonel here was like, well, you know, we... we Trust me, this state's always been good to the good, the good black people. So we'll keep mm. you, we'll keep you in mind. The Sentinel said it was opposed to Negroes voting, but would open its pages for discussion. Favorable articles appeared by Victor C. Berenger and David L. Swaint. The idea was to forestall any attempt of Northern white leaders and capitalists to control the Negro vote. The Negroes, however, had thought and leadership both from the free Negro class who had some education and from colored immigrants from the North, many of whom had been born in North Carolina but had escaped from slavery. During the year 1865, Negroes circulated petitions asking the president for equal rights. The convention of 1865 met October 2nd. The ordinance of secession was repudiated and slavery abolished, but no action was at first was taken on the Confederate debt. Johnson interfered, and at last the debt was formally repudiated although the leading papers of the state called the action humiliating. The General Assembly met in November when the 13th Amendment was ratified, but the vote explained that this amendment did not give Congress power to legislate on the civil and political status of the freedmen. I mean, it did. It yeah. did exactly that. It's, that's the thing it did. That's that was kind of the, the whole point. thing it did. That was kind of the big deal. A commission was appointed to report on new legislation for the freedmen. The commission reported in 1866, and the General Assembly passed a bill which defined Negroes and gave them the civil rights that the free Negroes had never had before the war. An apprenticeship law disposing of young Negroes, preferably to their former masters and mistresses, was passed, and Negroes could be witnesses only in cases in which Negroes were involved. 
1867, there were acts to prevent enticing servants, harboring them, breach of contract, and later seditious language and insurrection. The adjourned session of the convention in May made a significant change in the basis of representation. Formerly, three-fifths of the Negroes had been counted in the representation, but the new constitution changed the basis to the white population alone and allowed only white persons to vote or hold office. Oh, progressive North Carolina. Yeah, they're so far ahead, they finally got rid of the three-fifths compromise after losing the Civil War. Yep. During the state convention, the Negroes had met in Raleigh and adopted a set of resolutions, asked in moderate and well-chosen language that the race might have protection and an opportunity for education. They also asked that discrimination before the law be abolished. They said nothing about suffrage. In the fall of 1866, Worth was chosen governor. He advocated the rejection of the 14th Amendment. The legislature agreed. Holden, the former provisional governor and now leader of the Republicans, changed his attitude toward Negro suffrage and in December 1866 openly advocated votes for Negroes. David. Holden says the people of North Carolina had rejected President Johnson's plan of reconstruction on the white basis. They had also rejected the Howard Amendment under which they could have returned to the Union as Tennessee did. Nearly three years from the close of the hostilities had elapsed and we were still under provisional provisional form with a national military paramount what was to be done in a conversation which i had with thaddeus stevens in december 1866 he told me he thought it would be best for the south to remain 10 years longer under military rule and that during this time we would have territorial governors and territorial legislatures and government at Wa- at washington would pay our general expenses as territories as territories and educate our children white and colored once again Thad Dad is right. Thad Daddy, back from the grave. I did not want that state of things in North Carolina. I did not want to run the risk of a practical confiscation of our property to pay the expenses which would have been entailed upon us by these military governments. As always, the the super racist thing, no big governments, because uh, they don't want to actually have to be held accountable. I did not want North Carolina to cease to exist as a state. I confess I feared confiscation of property to a greater or less extent, especially as President Johnson had said to me in May 1865, I intend to confiscate the lands of rich men whom I have excluded from my pardon and from my proclamation, and divide the proceeds thereof among the families of the Wool Hat Boys, the Confederate soldiers whom these men forced into battle to protect their property in slaves. Where is that, not, Johnson? Not giving, not giving the property to the slaves. No, 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 no. Giving the property to the ex-Confederate soldiers. No, oh. no, no. That, that makes sense. Okay. That makes okay. sense, Johnson. Never you mind. You cock and balls. Yeah, don't misread. Don't don't let me misread. Johnson is Johnson. No, no, Johnson. John, no, you, no, you were. He was going good. He was going to confiscate lands. Which, yeah. yeah. And give it to Confederate soldiers. Yeah. Had us in the first half. Uh, Had us in the first half. When the Reconstruction Act was under consideration in Congress, the North Carolina Negro sent a delegation to Washington asking for the removal of Worth and that Holden be relieved of his disabilities so that he could again be put in office. In September 1867, after the Reconstruction Act had passed, the Negro leaders called another convention in Raleigh. Among these leaders was James H. Harris, born in North Carolina but educated in Ohio. Even the whites acknowledged that he had great ability. Another leader was James Walker Hood, born in Pennsylvania and sent south on a missionary by the African Zion Church. He became eventually a leading official in the organization of the public schools of North Carolina and finally was elected bishop of his church. Other Negro leaders were A.H. Galloway, Isham Sweat, and J.W. Ward. This rally convention asked for full rights and full protection and the abolition of all discrimination before the law. They especially demanded ample means and opportunity for education. The convention resolved itself into an equal rights league and established a newspaper. The order for general registration was was published in May 1867, and the registration was to begin in July of in 170 registration districts. In the appointment of the boards, Governor Worth wanted to avoid the appointment of the Negroes, but recommended a few. For the general board, G.W. Broody, a colored minister of the North, was selected by General Sickles. There were 106,000 whites who registered and 72,000 Negroes. 93,006 voted for the Constitutional Convention, and 32,961, all of them white, who voted against the Constitution. 
The Constitution was ratified April 21st, 1868 by a vote of 93,000 against 74,000. In the registration, 19 counties had Negro majorities, and in several other counties, the white majority was less than 100. Immediately, there was an attempt to organize political parties. A People's Convention met March 27th with white and black delegates. It was denounced by the planters as a meeting of Holden's... Miscegenationists. Misagin- oh, God, miscegenation has made a comeback. Good it's Lord. Back. That's a nasty one, too. Holden's miscegenationist. Dear God. That's that's very much that they're going to rape our women. and Uh-huh. The colored delegates took a prominent part and made many speeches, and a Republican Party was organized. On the other hand, an attempt was made in Raleigh to call a colored mass meeting at which Governor Worth and other conservatives were to speak. The idea evidently being to divide the Negro vote between the parties, but the conservatives did not respond. Foiled by their own arrogance. Hoisted on their own petard. Yes, right. Among the colored people, there was growing a strong feeling about the land. Some wanted the land confiscated and given to small farmers, but many of the Negro Northern capitalists opposed this. Harris advocated taxation of large estates so that the land could be sold and opportunity given to Negroes to buy. On the other hand, he wanted the disabilities of the planters removed while most of his fellow followers were opposed to this. The election was held in November 1867 and resulted in a large majority for the convention. Although over 50,000 people, mostly whites, did not vote. On January 14, 1868, the Constitutional Convention on the Congressional Plan convened at Raleigh. Of the 133 members of the body, 18 were northern carpetbaggers and 15 were Negroes. The leading carpetbaggers were H.L. Grant of Rhode Island and the Reverend S.S. Ashley of Massachusetts. Afterwards, the superintendent of public instruction. The Reverend James Walker Hood of Pennsylvania was the outstanding Negro delegate. The Reverend Ashley was made the chairman of the Committee of Education, and from this position, he greatly influenced the educational provisions of the Constitution of 1868. The leading Negro members were James H. Harris, J.W. Ward, J.W. Hood, and A.H. Galloway. The next year, Hood was made an agent of the Bureau of Education, and there, there did his life work. In the convention, the chief matters of discussion were segregation in schools, intermarriage, and propositions concerning holding of state offices by Negroes. The records of the proceeding were of the convention adhere the records of the proceedings of the convention adhere strictly to parliamentary form. There were no speeches by any of the members of the convention recorded. The Constitution, which was adopted, had a Bill of Rights in which men were declared equal, slavery prohibited, and the people's right to education asserted. Property qualifications for office were abolished, and universal suffrage and a system of public schools ordered to be established. There was also provisions for vagrants, a penitentiary, public charities, and orphanages. The convention wrangled over the question of separate schools for Negroes, and finally refused to make separation of races and schools compulsory. They discussed intermarriage and universal suffrage. There was a proposition to get loans from Congress for agricultural purposes and for buying lands and homes. This was declared to be pay for Negroes for their long labor without reward and for their services during the war. So basically reparations. Yeah. Yeah. Loans from three million to ten million were proposed. The convention passed 75 ordinances and 56 resolutions and sat for 55 days. The reception of this constitution and the work of the convention were characteristic. The planter press in the state was strong and it insulted the convention in every possible way. The real brunt of the attack, however, fell not on the Negroes, but on northern capitalists and leaders. The Republican Standard called the convention one of the ablest and most dignified and most patriotic bodies that ever assembled in the state. The reactionary Sentinel called it the so-called convention of the Ethiopian ministrily. Ministrily. Minstrelsy. Minstrelsy. Jesus. Yeah. Great. Ham radicalism in its glory. Some said that the pillars of the Capitol should be hung in mourning for the murdered sovereignty of North Carolina. Uh, Yeah, these are just some nasty fucking racists. And Josiah Turner, who was the chief credit for finally overthrowing Reconstruction in North Carolina, said, In the legislative halls where once giants sat are adventurers, mannequins, and gibbering Africans. Holy shit! They're not even couching this. Good God! The North Carolinian, February 11th, 1868, said the Cowles Museum contains baboons, monkeys, mules, torgi, and other jackasses. Oh, my God. I'm not sure I even want to look up what the hell torgi is. Cause... I don't really want to, but we're no. going to. Oh, God damn it. Uh... They're calling everyone else animals. It's just a racist. Yeah. Animal. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, Albion Whitaker Torhee was an American soldier, liar, and diplomat. He was wounded in the Civil War, and he relocated to North Carolina, became involved in Reconstruction, served the Constitutional Convention. Okay, so he's just okay, one of so the members. Okay, so he was just a guy. Oh, so he was he was he was the white guy, and so just to underscore yeah. how racist it was, it was you know baboons, monkeys, mules, the one white guy, and other jackasses. Like fuck off. Mm-hmm. We're going to finish this page. Evidently, the state, by a combination of northern capitalists and Negroes, and by a corresponding refusal of the whites to cooperate, was passing under a new regime. In the convention, the carpetbaggers had large influence in the committees, and when the state was organized, they undertook to run it upon a larger scale, spending more money, certainly in part for the reason that the state had more things to do. As, for instance, public education, internal improvements, the extension of credit of the state, and public improvements. And that is where we will leave off for this week. We are going to start next week at the top of page 531 um god that was some virulent racism there that was some bad stuff at the end you also see the same pattern emerging because state by state du bois is breaking it down but every time he breaks it down it's it's consistently the same story right it's it's um Mm -hmm. um trying to disrupt and oppose conventions and and call them you know not valid pushing back against taxation pushing back against any kind of military occupation from reconstruction and then doing the whole protest like won't vote the yep. whole uh, the whole absentee strategy which wouldn't have won you a majority anyway nope it's uh it's it's constantly the same refrain yeah. uh and, and it's always again the the black delegations are always asking for very reasonable very very modest uh, gains and they're just being treated with complete repulsion and, and repudiated at every turn and well, it's just and you see how hard people are working to establish power i mean look how hard these conventions work look how hard people work to establish schools and i think that's a point maybe we've kind of underemphasized we pointed out like public schools were established um after the the civil war for everyone as part of reconstruction and so that was you know a big harbinger opposing public schools and not being taxed for them of planters and and that being a modern you know republican party thing because that that goes back to the planters that's who they are right um well something we're underemphasizing is that the schools that got created the public school that got created um, the whole system got created anyway was largely not just demanded by black people and for black people but you see, usually the people doing the tough legwork are black people, right? Administered so, by black people. I mean, yeah. most, how many of the how many of how the many, superintendents of education have been, have yeah, been black many, men at this point? And how many people, yeah, I mean, it's either the superintendent of education, the person who basically founded the education, the the secretary of education. I mean, it's always, always one of those that the schools are always established by these prominent black public leaders at the time. Yeah. And so, you know, something that, that we're learning from this book that we don't credit enough is how much black people steeply facing discrimination were fundamental to the founding of public schools in this country. Mm-hmm. And again, the fight for fighting for just educate basic educational rights, the, the yeah. kind of thing that, that should be that, that should be a, a, a given for, yeah, for any and, member of the for anyone living in this where we live in a society, quote unquote. Right. Um, and, and, and when I say fundamental, I, I don't mean fundamental like a big part. I mean, like they were the ones doing it. Like, you know, like we just discussed, they were the ones that were the established the education. They were the ones that were the representatives voting for it and, and fighting off all of these violent strategies. They were the ones voting those representatives in. It, yep. Yeah. I mean, time and time again, uh, that being said, this has been Mark's madness pod. We read books. Uh, if you would like to reach out to us, there are a number of different ways you can do that. The first of which is you could send us an email. Uh, you can email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, let's say you wanted to communicate via Twitter. You can do that, too. We're at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Uh, but let's say you wanted uh, to just join a community of like-minded people that also listen to this show ostensibly and then other just uh, good people that are that are members of our community. You can do so by joining our Discord server. Link to that is in our Twitter bio. If you don't want to use Twitter, you can email us and we will send you the link. Uh, that being said, David, it's disclaimer time. It's disclaimer time. Uh, so obviously me and Nathan started this podcast just because anytime you're reading theory or history, which, you know, as we can understand from this book has a lot to do with or becomes theory. Oftentimes, uh, you want to have someone to discuss it with that way you can capture the right context. You can understand the things around it. 
Uh, you can make sure you're processing things, not missing sentences, stuff like that. And most importantly, so that you can sit down afterward and discuss what the content was and how it relates to you today. Uh, and that's what you should be doing in any kind of reading group or political education group associated with a party that you're hopefully organizing with. And hopefully you're reading these works and doing that. And we can be what we've wanted since the beginning is to be someone else to add to that group, to be another perspective, another voice in that discussion. Uh, save for that, save that you're just reading these on your own because maybe your political education group um, or reading group is doing, you know, shorter works or different works or whatever, hopefully we can be that reading group. And save for that, um, whether it's a book like this where we're essentially enhanced ebook or a book where we summarize, whatever we can do to get this work get these works out and accessible to you because we want this theory guiding your actions because your actions without theory they're just charity or maybe even nothing at all but when you have theory behind it it becomes putting that theory in action it becomes praxis and of course without the praxis there's no point to this theory they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always once again this is mark's madness pod we read books and we will talk to you all next week my name is nathan my name is david Bye. Bye.